The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everybody. Nice to see folks tonight. So usually at the end of the month, I bring up this teaching that really comes to the core of what we're doing at Common Ground, and it always seems initially um, simple, this teaching on dana or generosity, but actually it's the first thing the Buddha taught. And we try to organize the center, the you know, organization around this principle. So you've noticed probably by now, those of you who've been coming, that we don't charge for any of the programs here. and We don't talk about money, but like any organization this size, we have kind of the normal expenses you'd expect. We have office staff, Gabe Keller's, our office manager, and Shelley is the associate director, as well as one of our teachers, and Gail Iverson is our bookkeeper. I also have some administrative duties. And then we have the building, and we have our retreat property out in western Wisconsin, and we're in the middle of probably will end up being about a $300,000 renovation of our retreat property. Hopefully many of you will get out there in the years ahead as we finish that project up sometime late fall or more likely midwinter. And all of this happens just because people come and appreciate what's freely offered as a gift, right? So there's no cost. It's not some sneaky technique. It's really the idea is to practice receiving whatever you get here as a free gift. And I find it challenging. So if you're finding it easy, you might not be practicing you know, it's like there's all kinds of ways we can misinterpret what is happening here, like well, somebody else is paying for the center, so this is great. It's, it's the cheap Buddhist meditation center in town because there's no charges or something like that. But it's not that at all. It's like the, uh, it runs on generosity. So when we come, the hard part is like really receiving the generosity of everybody before us because that's why this place is the way that it is. People have made this place the way that it is. They've done the work, they've contributed the money, and then we get to receive it as a free gift. And then if at any point you want to be part of that, then you give back in a way that makes you happy. And some people volunteer their time, some people give money, some people just don't have really that much money to offer. They've got other obligations in their life. They offer their good wishes, or whatever it is. There's no way... There's no situation where people can't participate in the circle of giving and receiving because it doesn't have to look any particular way. That's the whole point. We don't talk a lot about money and we certainly don't have suggested donations because that wouldn't be this cycle, this beautiful circle of giving and receiving. Everyone's just got to find their own way. We, we practice receiving until it feels really good to receive the free gift of this place. And we practice giving until it feels really good. And if it doesn't feel good, then change it up. You know, Find a way to give and receive in a way that makes you feel good. Like the taste, the aftertaste, when you think about common ground, it leaves a good taste. It has a good taste. Oh, yeah. My relationship, my involvement, my participation. I don't, I'm not left feeling guilty or like, oh, I gave too much. I should have gotten more back or something. You know, it just has a nice, leaves a nice quality in our heart. We know that. It's the same thing in our intimate relations or whatever. Our relationship with our jobs, even those more formal places where we might You know, the the relationship around money is like spelled out in a contract. Even so, don't we want a nice taste? We want to be involved. We want to give and receive in a way that we're not harboring any unfinished business in the relationship, whether it's an emotional, you know, or intimate relationship with another person or a business relationship with a job or whatever. So Common Ground is here as a place to practice this more natural, and it takes a lot of responsibility. I mean, that's the one thing people are asked, 
is to have an actual responsibility with the center. But that's just going to happen in your own heart. You'll bring it to mind and see what feels good for you. So the one thing we ask people not to do is be distracted, you know, but to actually like... And it's not, again, be on the lookout for being suspicious. Like, okay, they just want me to give more money or something like that. Instead, it's like, I mean, we've operated this way now since 1993 when we started. And like, somehow the community has been able to buy the building. Two years of renovating this building some 10 years ago. You know, buy a retreat property. It's really just the farm in western Wisconsin. Develop that farm so that more people can stay there and do practice there in this beautiful, roly place of western Wisconsin. You know, and that we support teachers and we support our office staff and, you know, all the things that you need to do to have a, uh, a community like this. And that just happens naturally because of this circle of giving and receiving. So if you have any questions about it, just check in with me or uh, Gabe Keller Flores, our office manager, works on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And Gail Iverson, our bookkeeper, she works on Tuesdays. So you can contact us if you have any questions. There's not a right or wrong way to do it, but really any way that makes sense in your life will support you in kind of making that happen. So last week I started talking about this particular aspect of practice that I want to talk about and give some time to hear back from the community. And it's really an essential muscle in spiritual life. And, you know, in general terms, we might call it this capacity, we want to develop the skill, or this capacity to put down the world. And when we say that, you know, we're putting down the um, addictive, obsessive connection our thinking mind has, where we're talking to ourselves, basically, and sometimes talking to others about the world, about our fears and our hopes and our likes and our dislikes and the judgments and the comparisons and the planning and the worrying. And really, in some ways, it's one of the initial moves in spiritual life is to put that down. And there's all kinds of interesting, funny stories, not just from the Buddhist tradition, but just generally from spiritual traditions about that basic spiritual move of putting things down. I mean, some of you who have kids, you know, one of the things, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot to obsess about when, you're, when you have a kid, like, am I doing a good job as a parent? But a lot of our stuff that we might otherwise be thinking about, worrying about, it's just like we don't have bandwidth for it anymore. We have to put it down. So one of the, you know, when we make commitments to have kids or volunteer or whatever it might be, it means that a lot of the other things we might do or we might worry about, we can't because we're committed to this. We're giving our life to this thing here. And it's a little bit like that in the meditative form of sitting down in a simple way in a quiet room and directing the attention to something ordinary. You know, generally it's the present moment, but often the mind needs a little bit more help. So we say, okay, how about breathing in in the present moment, followed by being aware of breathing out in the present moment, or being aware of the body sitting, or being aware of hearing. Or, you know, there are many forms, like even doing a ritual. Like one thing that's common in Buddhism and other religious traditions. I certainly learned it as a Catholic, being raised as a Catholic. You know, bowing down, but you know, or genuflecting, kneeling down, whatever we did back in the day in my church in North Minneapolis growing up, St. Austin's, being an altar boy and all that, right? There's all these sort of forms. And if either you can do it grudgingly or the whole point is to give ourselves to these simple forms or you know, we even did in Lent, during Lent, do the rosary together as a family. We pretty traditional Catholics back then in the early 60s. And they were kind of beautiful forms. And the thing is, 
to the degree we give ourselves to these forms, to that degree the mind can't be obsessing, worrying, planning, comparing, judging, doing whatever else the mind would be doing. And it really is the first step. Like if we're going to learn anything about the mind, about the heart, the more underlying or subtle nature of the mind, the first thing that has to happen is the mind, the practice, has to break the spell, crack the addictive cycles of thoughts, leading to more thoughts, leading to more thoughts. Right? We're lost in thought primarily. Every once in a while we have an actual experience where there's just seeing or hearing or touching, and then we immediately go into thinking about that, and then thinking about what we just thought, and then thinking about that and on and on. And when we finally get exhausted or bored by all of our thinking, we look through our files and find something else to think about or worry about or plan or judge. right? And it gets so familiar, so commonplace, that then the mind eventually starts to feel threatened when that ongoing discursive mental proliferation isn't happening. It's so unfamiliar which is why we get pushback when we take up a particular mental training. This, you know, in Buddhism, we, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but the practice of seclusion. We're actually secluding by being aware of the breath coming in, that whatever that is, six seconds, let's say, you know, from the beginning of the in breath all the way through to the end. Now, all the mind is doing, it's like, it's not even, sometimes we think, oh, I got to look at the breath. I mean, obviously, we don't have to look at the breath, but there's sort of like the sense, okay, where is that happening? But we don't need to locate it because where, is the, where are the sensations of breathing in happening? They're happening in the mind already. It's the only place that the sensations of breathing in is being known or being known already in the mind. So it's not like we need that sort of physical directing of the attention We just need a very particular mental muscle remembering that breathing in is being known or breathing in can be known, right? It's like seeing is happening right now. You notice seeing, not looking at something, but just the seeing that's happening because our eyes are open. And notice you don't have to make an effort to see, do you? The only effort that's required is to remember that seeing is happening. Like if you were going to use seeing as a gateway into being in the present moment, because seeing only happens in the present moment. So if you were going to use seeing, just like we might use the sensations of breathing in as a way to uh, stabilize, strengthen the present moment awareness, we could use seeing too. But the only muscle, it isn't like we need to work at seeing, we just need to work at remembering that seeing is happening, not forgetting that seeing is happening. That's the effort to stay present. You could do that with hearing, same thing, right? Like you don't, I don't need to do anything to hear because hearing is just what the mind does. It's sort of built in, it's a natural function of a mind to hear, but I do need, if I forget, then I won't be aware of the hearing. So to be aware, I have to remember that hearing is happening, that hearing is being known, seeing is being known, breathing in. And we don't need all of them. We could just, like as a training, to train and developing the continuity of present moment awareness, we just choose one. And bodily sensations tends to be one of the most concrete and less seductive of present moment experiences, right? So like for not everyone, but for a lot of us, just feeling that touching as the air goes in the nostrils or feeling the air as the, feeling the touching as the air goes out or feeling the movement in the belly or just that general sense of the rib cage expanding and contracting. <coughs> with the breathing process. 
for most of us, that's not an emotionally charged or not a lot of trauma, maybe for some of you, but generally not a lot of trauma associated with those sensations of the breath. So we can just be aware. Remember that, that those sensations are being known. Remember that those sensations are being known. And to the degree I'm opening, the mind has to drop its obsessive thinking, planning, judging, worrying, remembering, fantasizing, whatever it might be. So this is how we break that spell. We go from the world where we normally live, which is our world of our thoughts about things, cognitive, conceptualizing world, into a more simple world of dharma, the way it is, like sensations as sensation. Hearing is just hearing, seeing is just seeing. Thoughts are just thoughts. So in this world, dharma, the way it is, it's not that there isn't thinking. Thinking has a lot of momentum. Thinking isn't inherently bad. But not being confused by the thoughts. Knowing when thoughts are happening, when thinking is happening. Oh yeah, that's just thoughts. Doesn't mean that we're not, because, you know, thinking has has a purpose. But I could plan something, I could be in conversation with somebody and have enough space of continuity of mindfulness to know that thinking's happening, language is happening, meaning is being exchanged in the conversation. I can be aware that that's happening and still be coherent, whether I'm sort of just in my own mind planning something with words or in conversation with another human being. Like even now, even though you may not be talking, you're hearing, so you're involved in this conceptual level. Can't you, can't you be aware that the mind is comprehending my words and that this is just something happening in the present moment? This cognitive activity of hearing me and making sense of what I'm saying, it's happening here. Just like you can be aware, and like this, it's more of a global presence, right? Like you can be aware of the the body sitting, the bodily sensations. You can be aware of hearing. So not even the comprehending of the words. That's more of a cognitive activity, right? But just the pitch of my voice, the percussive nature of language, you know, you can be aware just on that raw level of hearing sound and comprehending and seeing and feeling the body. Just like if you're listening to an orchestra, you can hear the whole movement of music and and also be aware of the different elements, the drums, the strings, the woodwinds, the whatever, different, the brass. What's that? Is that what it's called? Brass? <laughs> right, so the different sort of pieces or elements of that, of that music. Because we're training the mind to use these natural elements of the present moment not as a part of the drug, the addictive drug to kind of keep the obsessive storytelling going, conceptual activity going, but as a way of supporting this more simple and ultimately transforming present moment awareness. We're really, and we call this the peace of seclusion, where the mind is, it's really a development of wisdom, where the mind is developing wisdom of not being confused by the diversity of experience. Because the from the point of view of the thinking mind, from the point of view of the story, the ongoing story I have, as I see things and I hear things and I feel things in terms of sensations, from the point of view of my story, I have to have an opinion about my sights and my sounds and the sensations I feel. Like I, the ones that I like, then I tell myself a story, like I like that sight, I like that sound. And the stuff I don't like, it's like, I don't like that. Turn away from that, I want to get away from that. And the stuff that's neutral, I don't have to pay attention to you because that sight, that sound is neutral. It's not strongly pleasant or unpleasant, so I don't really care about it. I'm not really going to even pretend that I've noticed it. 
because it's neutral. So that's our normal relationship with just sense contact, is to immediately go into, feed it into the story of liking, disliking, not caring about it because it's neutral. So unless something is sort of relatively pleasant or unpleasant, it just doesn't doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't register as the way it is right now. But we're developing this present moment awareness through like awareness of the breath, awareness of the whole body, awareness of hearing. These are three traditional meditative anchors to learn how to break the spell. Now, it's just the beginning of practice, really, but it's not a small piece. So to sort of take that up as a training, like when you sit down, and to get really interested, like, why is it so hard for my mind to sustain interest from the beginning of an inhalation all the way through to the end of the inhalation? What is it about breathing in this ordinary experience? Or what is it about hearing, like if you were sitting next to a little waterfall or hearing the wind blow through trees. or It's really not so different. You can just use the sound of the blower to hear that in the background. And then the other natural movements of people coughing or adjusting their posture. That's not so different than the wind through the leaves of trees. Except the idea that people are moving and they shouldn't be moving, right? But actually, in terms of a meditative anchor, this sort of background noise in a room full of 80 people works just as well as a babbling brook or a wind blowing through trees. Sometimes you think, oh, no, I need to be in this you know, ideal situation where either it's perfectly silent or natural sounds, crickets, or whatever it might be. But anything will do. Some of us who have practiced in Asia, in a lot of the monasteries, as the population has increased. They were outside of town, but eventually they end up kind of surrounded, you know, and it can be quite chaotic and noisy, and people, a lot of places in Asia seem to have these loudspeakers on top of homes and Buddhist monasteries and kind of blasting and sort of competing who has the loudest (laughs) megaphone to sort of blast party music or religious chanting or this or that. And but Anything can be turned into, oh yeah, like a gateway to the present moment. Really, anything works. But it's nice to develop some meditative anchors that are available, that are relatively neutral, and that the mind initially likes being aware of, like the whole body, or the breath in the body, or hearing. And then to really, like I was saying, to get interested in what point of view, what idea breaks that intention to be with the breath coming in, to be with the breath going out. It might be something like, well, this is stupid. And then from the point of view of practice, that's just a thought being known. See, then the mind, the continuity of present moment awareness doesn't miss a beat. Oh, that's just a thought being known. What else? Oh, yeah, breathing out is like this. Breathing in is like this. No, no, this is really stupid. Oh, yeah, and that's just a thought being known. Oh, and look at There's an emotional feeling associated with that thought. A little anxiety. Oh, honey, there's some fear here. Interesting. Fear is just this, just another actual quality in the mind and body. Can that be okay? Yeah. Okay, breathing in. So now we're normalizing the fear. Like I said, it can feel a little bit strange to be in the present moment because we're used to being lost in thought. We're just more familiar ground to be in our thoughts about things. Right? Can you even sense like how self-conscious we can be when there's some silence? Like, because I'm talking, you don't have to generate your own distractions, right? You can. It's like when we're watching a TV show or listening to a talk, we kind of absorb into that person's mind or the, you know, the show, the whatever the director and actors and whatever they're sort of 
or the surrogate mind activity for a while. And so then if, like, if there's a pause, like we sometimes get when the internet freezes up, and then all of a sudden, the mind, you can sort of catch the production studio in the mind, go, warning, warning, we got to fill this space, you know? Think, something quick. <laughs> Stupid computer, oh, there we go. You know, we, we plug in that tape. If you remember, some of you were younger, don't remember cassette tapes or videotapes, right? We put in that, like, file, Okay. Now the mind is filled. It's got some mental activity. It feels like I know what I'm doing. You know, I've got a tape going. I've got a file happening here. I'm somebody again. But we can learn to get comfortable with that space. And working with a meditative anchor is a way to do this in a very gentle, systematic way. In Buddhist terms, we're learning to get comfortable with emptiness. And here's the kicker, the funny part of that. How are we learning to get comfortable with emptiness? We're filling the attention, you know, so-called filling the mind. That's why mindfulness is a sort of ironic term. It kind of works. Because we're filling the mind with present moment, ordinary present moment activity. So full the mind is with this present moment activity of you know, feeling the sensations of the breath coming in, going out, or aware of the whole body sitting, aware of hearing, even aware of thinking as just thinking being known, not confused by the content. It's so full of these natural phenomena coming and going that there's really no space in the mind to construct a thought and be confused by the thought, taking it personally, being identified with the content of the thought. So the mind begins to experience, as I said, this emptiness because the experience that's being known, like feeling that simple, that very simple experience of air coming in the nostrils and the touching there, right? So that experience without me telling myself what that experience is, right? Just the simple awareness of touching or the simple awareness of the temperature of that touching of the air going in and of course the air going out and the air going in, right? So that's a very simple experience. But that experience, when the mindfulness is really strong, really there, really wholehearted, unwavering, that continuity, the not forgetting of the touching, 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 little pause, touching, 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 little pause, touching, right? And it could be any experience. I'm just using the breath as an example. could be any phenomena. could be brushing your teeth, could be walking, could be feeling the whole body, could be listening to music or the sound of wind through trees. could be anything. But breath is a common training anchor, and especially in the meditative posture when we're doing our formal sitting time. Well, in those moments, then the mind is empty of other activity, like constructing a sense of me doing something. Even that, even the thought, I'm breathing in, or I'm being mindful of the breath coming in. I'm being mindful of the breath going out. If the mind is constructing that thought, then to that degree, the mind isn't yet fully interested and connecting and sustaining with the breathing in process. Does that make sense? That to really be with the breathing in process, the mind, it's like, this is why we train in being wholehearted, really showing up, not holding back. And how to do that without getting tight, that's the real art. That's what we have to practice. And a lot of you who've been at it for a while know, it's like if we go at it sort of gung-ho, we start getting really tight and being with the breath, and judgmental and controlling. And then we go, this can't be right, I'm getting tighter. I'm pretty sure, you know, the instructors always say, relax. It's okay to relax. It's not only okay to relax, you won't really get anywhere in your practice until you centralize that instruction. Honey, it's okay to relax. Whatever it is this process of developing the continuity of present moment awareness is about, 
It doesn't involve tension. Now, you might notice a lot of tension, but when you do, and we do quite often in practice, let me say that again just in case you didn't hear that, we often experience a lot of tension in practice, but that's the chronic tension of having been a human being for a long time. It's sort of the residual of having been tight most of the time. So now when we're relaxing and being aware, we're going to notice the chronic tightness in the body and the mind. It will feel overwhelming at times. At least that's true for most of us. But getting tight about that chronic tightness is why you're tight to begin with. right? That's how it gets laid down. How many times today, I mean, especially some of us like myself, I've been practicing for 36 years with a lot of sincerity. Many, 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 many times today I noticed that habit of just being tight. But I'm happy when I notice it because then there's the possibility of, honey, it's okay to relax, right? I can put it down. So we're relaxing in order to be interested in the present moment And remember, as I mentioned earlier in the talk, the present moment is already being known in the mind, in the heart. So remembering to be present is the only effort that's required. But if we're tight, it will be harder to remember. So if we remember to relax, and you can try it right now, honey, it's okay to relax. That means both the body and mind. And see, then it's so much easier to be interested in what's already being known, what's already here in the heart being known. Oh, it's like this. You see, like being a human being, being a sensitive human being, do you sense, can you sense? Oh yeah, it actually is like this right now for us, isn't it? And when we have a moment of that, we realize how much of the time we're not intimate with being a human being or we're not intimate with the present moment. Because it's kind of rare when you, when you actually drop in and you feel the body, you feel the emotional quality, you, feel the, you sense the quality of the mood or attitude in the mind, you realize, oh, I'm almost never here. Where am I? Where is the mind? I mean, the short answer is lost in thought. Because that's the chronic habit, being lost in thought. And that really inspires us to work with these meditative anchors, to put in our 30 minutes or 15 minutes or 45 minutes or 60 minutes every morning or when we can schedule it in our life to get on retreats from time to time and to really use these simple training mechanisms like coming back to the breath, not as a way of controlling thinking, but as training. it's really a training in relaxation and interest. Right? So the work like of using a meditative anchor like the breath is to realize that when I'm relaxed, then I can direct my interest not toward my thoughts about stuff, but towards things of, in and of themselves, like the breath as a natural phenomena of sensation, right? or hearing as a natural phenomena that's right here and now in the present moment. So it's really we're training the mind to be interested in something ordinary. But see, our mind is not used to being interested in ordinary. We're only interested in things that are strongly pleasant and unpleasant. And even those things we immediately start thinking about, the strongly pleasant. Like if you finally got what you really want, maybe it's a piece of cake or ice cream or a good massage or whatever it might be, it's like, We might settle into the experience for a few seconds, but pretty quickly we're thinking about it. We're thinking about having more of it or how it could be even better. We generally don't stay in that that immediacy of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking as thoughts, being known. We're not in the present moment. We go back, we're just more familiar, more seemingly safe when we're lost in our thoughts about things. But the thing that we begin to see is how oppressive that is, and then we're really inspired to break that cycle. And then we want to sit every day. We want to put in the formal time so we can practice more throughout the day. 
because we'll never overcome this chronic habit of being lost in thought unless our sitting practice really supports our daily life. So we're using 15, 18 hours a day. Not obviously continuously because the, you know, the force of distraction and obsessive thinking, that's pretty strong. But we'll have moments, little moments here, little moments there. And the momentum builds. The momentum of present moment awareness builds just like the momentum of distractedness is built up over time because of habit, well, habits can change, right? So we can create this lifestyle, this habit of present moment awareness. And I mentioned last week, and I'll just repeat before opening it up for discussion, that there's a real internal barometer for developing this present moment awareness. Right? The first thing is like using, giving the mind a support, like what to pay attention to, to break its spell of having to notice things and react to everything it's noticing. Okay, honey, you just have to do one thing. Just feel the body sitting. Or if you like a more specific anchor, feel the breath coming in. Feel the breath going out. Or if you want a more spacious anchor, be aware of hearing. So those are three choices. Others, of course, but work with one of those three is probably a good start. And then the more that we build some momentum, like willing to start over, willing to start over, willing to start over, eventually there there builds some momentum, like you're really with that object, some continuity, some unwavering for seconds at a time maybe. And then because you're realizing in that with that continuity that that a lot of the effort can relax because it's the, just that specific effort of remembering. Because initially we're, th- we're going to throw more effort at it than it needs. You know, because we almost need to do that because the pull towards thinking about our practice and thinking about other things is so strong that we have to kind of be dramatic like you really got to do this. You know, this is important. Buddhism or bust or something like that, you know. But then we realize that that what's the effort required is very refined. It's like, don't forget. Don't forget. That's really the appropriate level in your mind. Like, honey, don't forget. It's just this. Just remember this. Sure, you could you could pay attention to so many different things and react and 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 but let's experiment with just keeping this in mind, the not forgetting of this. Let's just see what happens. And then the more you realize how little or just subtle the effort is, then the mind just becomes more relaxed and it starts to notice that the whole world... So initially we exclude the attention from the great diversity of what's going on in the present moment. And no, no, just know the breath coming in. Just know the breath going out. But then as the mind really understands a little bit more about effort, then it can keep the breath as it's coming in in mind. It can keep the breath as it's going out in mind. And now it's more relaxed and it notices hearing is there in the background. Thoughts are still there in the background. Other sensations in the body are there in the background. Like it doesn't need to push anything away. It doesn't need to make that neurotic, let's say, effort to exclude anything. So I can be really right there with the breath coming in and out without closing my heart, shutting anything out. So that's, in the instructions, it's breathing in and knowing the whole body. Breathing out, knowing the whole body. And body here really means the five physical senses. But if it's all happening in the periphery, you're not, you don't really have an agenda about hearing or about other sensations in the body, or about any smells or tastes that are going on, or sights. But you're not not knowing them either, not presuming that I should be sensitive to sights, even though aware of the breath coming in, aware of the breath going out. And that allows for a really resonant calm to settle into the body and mind, right? Because... Now the mind 
body, it isn't doing a lot of neurotic, unnecessary stuff. The effort is this very refined effort of just remembering the present moment, using the rhythm of the breath as a sort of cue. Oh yeah, remembering the present moment? Because that's actually the object of awareness, is the present moment. And to use the actual physicality of breathing in and breathing out as sort of front and center. But even that then, as more calm develops, then actually the calm, the stability, the collectedness of the mind becomes what is most known as I'm breathing in and breathing out. And the sensations of the breath and the other sensations in the body and the hearing and the seeing and any other sort of ordinary experiences in the present moment, they're right there, but the mind is noticing the calm that comes with being present and not reacting, and the calm that comes with being present and letting things be. And then that matures into joy, a lightness, and then that matures into a more resonant ease, a kind of sometimes surprising relaxation of the heart. Not physically, but it might feel like it's happening there. But it's like a load is being put down that you you had forgotten you were carrying. Ah, sukha is the Pali word. It's actually you know, uh, Sanskrit and Pali are have Indo-European language roots, so it's related to the word sugar, sukha. And uh, and then that matures into this happiness of dispassion. So, and this is territory that people here in this room will experience in moments in your retreat or in your sits where you know, you've gotten some momentum, the heart, body, mind feels pretty settled, right? You've had some continuity, you've noticed the calm, you've noticed that quality of lightness, PT is the Pali word, rapture, joy, but just that buoyant, quality of a mind. It's just like everything's in motion and the mind isn't resisting the movement of the breath, the movement of seeing, the movement of thought. And it's very pleasant. And when the mind notices the pleasantness of the joy, then it relaxes. That's the ease or the sukha. Ah, this is trustworthy. To really receive that inner happiness, that inner ease. Ah, and then that ease really allows, it gives the mind some resilience, like it's almost as if the mind is saying something like, there's enough stability, there's enough ease, enough well-being, that I don't, I don't need to worry about the thoughts. You know, thinking, do whatever you want. Thoughts are just thoughts. So the next step here, the Buddha says, so you observe the mental formations, the mental constructions, the mental activity, but from this equanimous place, like you're not trying to stop thoughts. You're not seeing thoughts as an enemy. Thoughts are just thoughts. And surprisingly, that non-involvement with the thinking really quiets thinking down. And that's the... The, the next step is to notice that thinking is getting quieter precisely because you don't have a problem with it. Precisely because you're not trying to control it or think your way out of it. You're just letting thoughts, it's almost like someone left a radio on. You know, that attitude like, yeah, thoughts. Just that mental activity, that part of the mind, that's what it does. It thinks this, then it thinks that. Some people describe in this place in practice, they'll come to like a teacher in an interview on a retreat, like to me, with me, and they'll say, you know, hey, I've been just sitting, feeling pretty settled, you know, feeling light, feeling like there's some continuity of awareness. And I notice like thoughts are just moving, spewing, but they're not even comprehensible. It's not even like the thoughts make sense. And that can be sometimes a telltale sign in this place, like the mind has such a relaxed and open relationship with thoughts, it's not even demanding that thoughts make sense. So then thoughts can be observed in a more elemental way. It's almost like little fragments of images and thoughts and not even complete sensical sentences, you know? 
because there's nobody dependent. There's no part of the mind feeding on the meaning, the thoughts. So the thoughts stop losing the need to make sense. But that habit of the mind, it's almost like an internal generator of mental activity, cognitive activity. Well, you may have a lot of momentum, but that doesn't have to be a problem for anybody. Just like seeing and hearing doesn't have to be a problem. Unless there's a sense of a me that doesn't want to be hearing what I'm hearing or seeing what I'm seeing. But we don't have to take that stance, even with our thoughts. You know, do what you're going to do. It's okay. I'm not going to be confused by it. I'm not going to be for or against it. Because ultimately a thought is just a thought. And if I need my mind to think through something, then I'll pick up that particular tool of thinking and I'll direct it in the way that seems appropriate to direct it and use the thoughts to whatever. Map out something that I want to map out or have a conversation with somebody. Otherwise, take the attention away from thoughts. Whether they continue or not, that's their business. Because that thinking is a natural process that has its own karma, we say, you know, its own causes and conditions that have set it in motion. That's why some of our thoughts are quite weird or despicable or beautiful because of past causes. You know, the what's been set in motion, what's been practiced, you know, what grooves have been cut, well, those those tendencies will express themselves. So just be on the lookout of this whole natural progress. And it's not like linear, just one time, this direction. But you'll jump around, but basically breaking the spell of the thinking by having a more um, assertive intention to connect with the meditative object in order to break the spell of being lost in thought, but then lightening up the effort, so really refining the kind of effort, and you'll notice you're getting there because the awareness will be more inclusive. And then that will lead to a resonant calm, which will lead to a lightness, which will lead to a deeper relaxation of the heart ease, which will allow the mind to have a different relationship to mental activity, what we call the happiness of dispassion. Thoughts are just thoughts. And it's still going on from here, but this is like, half of the Buddha's instructions around mindfulness of breathing. But regardless of the particular object, in this case we've been talking about breathing, that whole process that I just outlined the last 10 minutes, that's true with whatever particular object you'd be working with, doing walking meditation or just general continuity of present moment awareness in daily life or working with hearing. It's that same thing of moving, like making a stronger effort to break the spell, refining the effort so the awareness becomes a little bit more inclusive, more of a sense of the wholeness of the present moment, feeling the relaxation that comes from that, noticing the joy, the deeper ease, the capacity to observe thoughts without being pushed around by them. And that opens the mind to an even more refined stillness that I'll talk about in the next couple of weeks. But we have about seven minutes or so. It would be nice to hear from a few folks, your own questions, comments from your practice. Before we end at 8.30, it would be nice to see what other people have been learning in their practice. And it's always nice to share your name, too, if you decide to share. So what have you been learning? What questions come up from the talk tonight? Some of you have been at it for a while. Some of you are new. But everyone's welcome to share. We learn a lot from people. Yeah, Brad, please. You were talking about uh, being dissatisfied with neutral sensation, and it struck me that every time I drive home from here, I'm not satisfied with the neutral sensation of driving. And so every time I'm searching for some way to make it more exciting. And for me, I'm always reaching for a snack. But what struck me is how desperate I am to get out of that neutral because I've looked around, on, I'm driving, and I'm looking around on the floor f- for a box of something, and it's dangerous. And yet I'm so desperate to get out of this neutral thing, neutral mind state, that I'm doing that. Not very often, but I... And 
I've also noticed because o- over the but years, just so you know, I mean, I know you know this, Pat, but that's a powerful insight to be studying the mind to notice its relationship to neutrality and how, in a sense, existentially scary neutrality is. That gets our attention when we start to catch that part of the mind. Yeah, thanks, Brett. Yeah, it's almost a desperation to get out of it. Yeah. Uh, but I have noticed over the years, I have a, f- a few things that I've become mindful about that now every time I do them, I, I catch myself starting them, and I'll th- I, then I'm aware that when I get, I'm doing the same thing. Instead of being mindful about and interested in the activity, I'll switch to this is neutral. Uh, but I'm aware of it. It's, 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 it's uh, kind of fun to catch myself do that. Yeah. And that's a very interesting thing to look at, that last point that Brad made, made like, is the mind, is the heart willing to really relax with interest in this neutral experience? And remember, you don't, it doesn't have to be long, so just because you want to build on success, because there will be real pushback. It's so like, like when you're feeling bored and you feel the impulse to get up and do something, to just say, okay, just before, sure, you're gonna, you're totally okay to move, but just stay and really open to that feeling of boredom. That feeling that nothing's happening. It's like, it almost feels like it's gonna kill us. Being bored, nothing happening. That feeling of stagnation. It's like really to get interested in it. You don't have to stay there forever, but just to like, Make peace with it for a few moments. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is why going on long retreats, like especially longer ones, I've done a number of three months or longer retreats. No talking, no checking the news for that length of time. I mean, you talk when you meet with a teacher, but other than that, you're not talking or interacting with people. And it really feels like it's going to kill you. Like somehow being in that space where all you're doing is sitting and walking meditation and you know a few other things, pooping and eating and taking a shower every other day or something like that, but not much else. And uh, so there are many, many of these moments where the neutrality, because you know, you're like, time for walking meditation, it's like every walking place I could possibly go was boring. It's like, I don't, and, and, and then to really lean in, like, okay, so what does that feel like? What's that feeling of not wanting to do that? Because it's so interesting. It really feels like a life-threatening thing to go into that walking room or to even like in the woods, like, oh, I've been here, done this. You know, it's so desperate for something interesting. Start reading the labels of shampoo bottles. I mean, really, and then that's so funny. I mean, that at least you're going for a snack, but when you catch yourself obsessively, Looking at things, you know, insects become fascinating. Oh, I'm so glad a fly's come in my room. I can obsess about it. Yeah, thanks, Brad, for sharing with us. Yeah, please. Hi, I'm Catherine. Um, I just wanted to build off of what you said, Brad. Um, Something that's really hard for me, coming to neutral from feeling, uh, whatever, a lack of pleasure, or feeling a sort of discomfort is something that I think got me into meditation because it feels good to get to neutral from from sadness or from anger or whatever. And something I've been struggling with lately is almost the opposite of what you're talking about, which is going from feeling really good and feeling that excitement and that heart pounding and that that hope, that joy, whatever it is, and letting that go to come back to neutral. Um, and I've, I've done it before, and that feels really great, but it's almost like this feedback loop of like, oh, this feels good, I'm back to feeling excitement. And I was curious of you know, how to develop that, that relationship with feeling neutral, feeling that, uh, that feeling of okay, neutral's fine, I don't have to cling or grasp at the excitement just because it doesn't happen quite as much as whatever else. Yeah, yeah, no, great comments and questions. Yeah, and we're, we're almost out of time, but one, one thing to play with is 
when something delightful or beautiful blooms in your life, some good things happening and you're attentive to it and opening to it. And, but try to see the, the neutrality there. See, without suppressing the joy, without sort of negating the joy, like really let the joy, the energy move. It's kind of like when we fall in love or when we do something fun with our friends or have a nice meal something fun, getting a good massage or something like that, where even in the midst, even when it's peaking, the pleasantness of the experience is peaking, and it's, you know, it's just really great. But we're all along that, of the whole arc of it, that it's going to end, that it will be over. It's kind of like living our life now, knowing that we're going to die, never forgetting that we're going to die, never forgetting how this ends. You see, it doesn't say no to the joys of life, but it just puts it in context. So that's one way to keep the neutrality integrated in with the joys instead of, because the reason why it's a difficult transition is not because of the joy, but because we misunderstood the joy, that it's it's an ephemeral thing. I was talking to one of our longtime community members today in a, one-on-one practice meeting. Um, This person has a couple of high school students. I think they're juniors. And just that arc of raising kids, and then, you know, it won't be long before they're out of the house. And, uh, And how to sort of appreciate the moments, but know that it's how ephemeral it is. Like the joys and maybe sorrows of having teenagers. And so that whatever it is now, like really difficult to be a parent of teenagers or really beautiful to be, but that it's a, it's a flow. It's not anything that can be bottled and kept. So whatever beautiful things happen in our lives, if we're aware that it's like sand through the fingers, I can't own the pleasantness or the beauty. It's still beautiful, but I can't bottle it and I can't own it. And then it changes our relationship to the joys and the beauty in life, right? Because it actually becomes more beautiful because we're not wasting our time trying to own it or make it more than what it is. So you might just play with seeing the neutrality, seeing how you can own it. That's the neutrality, you know, the, that the beauty, the goodness isn't... Uh, can't be ground for you. But it is true. It's real as anything is real. Like those beautiful experiences that come our way, they're real, but they can't be grasped. And I know the language is a little, I'm struggling a little bit with the language here, but it may be enough to go on to actually work on it, like to see the joy, but to see that it can't be grasped at the same time. So if you go home and you have a partner at home and you're having a good time with your partner, like just practice really seeing the beauty and that it can't be owned, it can't be bottled, it can't be grasped. All we can do is appreciate the beauty, the goodness, without the grasping. And that gives us a, the combination of joy and neutrality. Or another word for neutrality is non-grasping. Because that's how the mind relates to neutrality. It doesn't bother to grasp. That's why it's really useful to train with uh, your meditation objects that are more neutral, like walking, you know, between your car and the office or whatever, because we don't want to be aware of that because it's neutral. But we learn something about neutrality because the tendency of the heart with neutral is not to have a big agenda or expectations or to be graspy. And then we can look at that. It really helps. Did you have more to say? Oh, so almost as if it's, you kind of think about it just as another feeling of this, not this too shall pass, but this whole idea of, yes, this is really great. And when I let it go, I'm acknowledging that something else that will be great will might happen in the future, just like something bad might happen in the future, whatever. 
Yeah. And we're replacing the the holding to what's beautiful to the appreciation of flow or movement or non-grasping. So in a way, you know, we hear words like nirvana or nibbana in the Buddhist tradition, enlightenment, awakening. But there, that word, the way the Buddha used that word is really the happiness of the heart that's not clinging. And that's the most refined kind of happiness. Now this is for us to check out. It's not something to believe in, but to check out. As nice as life is in moments, is the happiness of non-grasping even more beautiful than having what we want? That's for us to check out. Thanks so much for sharing with I didn't hear your name. Oh, I'm Catherine. Hi, Catherine. everyone. Thanks, Catherine and Brad and everyone for being here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.